0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, 12th chapter, verses 9 through 14. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: There's a woman named Laura Santos, who is a psychology professor at Yale University. And recently, she introduced a class on the subject of happiness and how to find it. That class is now the largest class at Yale University. But more stunning than that, it's the largest class in the history of Yale University. By the way, Yale was established a long time before Indiana actually existed as a state, okay? 1701, the largest class ever, Since 1701. Very intriguing. People seem to be looking for the answer to the question concerning happiness. Another person who is sort of a pop psychologist slash sociologist slash entrepreneur business type. His name is Arthur Brooks. So I should tell you, I've done a lot of uh, bouncing around the internet this week you know, TED Talks kind of stuff, you know, that kind of stuff, on this question concerning the meaning of life and happiness and what's out there. Arthur Brooks, who's the president or was the president of the American Enterprise Institute, gave some amazing statistics concerning happiness. He, like everybody else who makes these claims, suggests that the statistics are absolutely true and accurate. I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. I don't do statistical research, so I assume it's correct. But here they are. He said when they did studies, and they did hundreds of studies, to determine the nature of happiness and where it comes from and what it was all about, they discovered that 48% of your happiness comes to you through your DNA. So, 48% of you who seem to be happy a lot, you get no credit for it, okay? You were just born that way. And if you're not happy a lot of times and you're grumpy, that's okay. You were born that way. 48% of you um, is sort of stamped with a particular DNA towards happiness or not. Again, I can't prove these statistics, but I found them to be fascinating uh, you all have people in your life, either at work, colleagues, or something like that, who are just, just euphoric all the time or happy all the time. and They're kind of annoying, right? Um, they can't help it. And if you're grumpy, you can't help that either. But you say, that's not it, right? Because that's only 48%. We got another 52% to account for here. What about that? Again, according to these statistics, 40% of your happiness is dependent upon major life events. So, 48% is your DNA. 40% is based on major life events. Let's say, for instance, like getting married or having a child or getting that job. Just ma- name those major life events. That's where 40% of your happiness uh, comes from. There's a lot of other interesting things about those statistics that I won't go into. But there's 12% left, right? Those who are into math. There's 12% left. What does that equal? The 12% equals work. Work. Or put it another way, just what you do. 48% genetics, 40%. Big life experiences, 12%, what you do. Now, of course, there's at least one part of that equation that's under your control, correct? The 12%, what you do. And it's not just about your job, it's what you do. Under that category of what you do, what they have determined, according again to these statistics, is the most Important four aspects of the what-you-do part, what's under your control part, is faith, family, community, and basically work. All of those are critical to your own happiness. Here's another fascinating uh, part of this story. Again, I haven't checked the statistics But the story goes like this. Social scientists studied two groups of people, as it relates to happiness, in order to do some comparative analysis. One was a group of people who were quadriplegic. And it happened because of an accident. They could no longer use their limbs. And the other group they studied was lottery winners. You laugh because you probably know where this is going. What is absolutely fascinating to me is that quadriplegics reported within six months of their accident that they were back to basically the same level of happiness that they had before. Not because they wouldn't do anything to get the use of their limbs back, they would. Not because they regretted whatever it was that took place in their life and wish they could have avoided it so they wouldn't be quadriplegic. They really did regret that. Whether it was in their control or out of their control. But something about the disposition of happiness that was central to who they were returned in roughly six months. Compared to lottery winners who six months After they won the lottery, across the board, were less happy than they were six months previous. Why? Well, let's go back to that list. Faith, family, community, work. The lottery winners, they didn't really need their faith because they had it all now. Their family, a lot of times, they just distanced themselves from their family because everybody wanted their money. Their community, everything they knew and grew up with and was meaningful to them was now not the center of their lives. And their work, well, they didn't have to work if they didn't want to. And where's their happiness? Lower than before. I'm about to do something I've never done. I'm about to to preach on an entire book in one sermon. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is in the category of what we call wisdom literature Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, right? Song of Solomon. It's right there, tucked in that genre of scripture. The book itself claims to be the wisdom or the wise sayings of Solomon the king of Israel, the son of David. How do you understand such a book? First, let me say this. This book is overwhelmingly depressing. I promise you it is. I read it from cover to cover several times this week to immerse myself in it, and I immerse myself in depression. i tell you it is. The man who wrote this book was worn out with life and depressed about it all. So why is it in the Bible? Where's the wisdom? Well, I'm going to try to get there. Hang on. You know what a hermeneutic is? It's, it's a tool whereby you understand something, right? It's a way you interpret something. And frequently what we do if we're trying to interpret something, we look at the background of it, right? The history. We look at the author, right? We look at all these different things to try to understand what's going on here. But sometimes, here's what we do with what I'll call hermeneutic. We basically say, this is the point. Now read the whole text through this. It's really audacious and kind of prideful and kind of simplistic, but I'm going to do it anyway. So here's what it is. If you take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes, in my opinion, the best way to understand it is this. This author presents life apart from the redeeming love of God. That's what he does. He looks at life as it is apart from the redeeming love of God. And he's very, very honest. You know, that's pretty wise. Maybe a little depressing, but wise. So how does he do it? Basically, he uses the entire book to talk about things that are meaningless. Seriously, he does. And then at the end, he summarizes it in the summary you heard read. So let's consider what he says is meaningless about life in order to consider what the meaningful life is. Well, first of all, he makes a dramatic statement. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, he uses this phrase again, both times at the beginning and the end. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, that's the way to open a book, isn't it? I mean, who's going to read that? He starts out that way. Can he really mean that? I mean, if he really meant that everything was meaningless, he actually would be indicting the good things that God created. Because God created everything and pronounced it good. So, surely he's not saying that. As a matter of fact, if everything is meaningless, including the things that God created, in turn, including creation itself, and you and me who are made in the image of God, if that is really true, and that's all he's saying, what he's doing He's actually indicting God You can't say a picture is nonsense and pathetic without insulting the author. And you can't say everything is meaningless without indicting God and his goodness. So really? Is that what the author saying? Well, yes and no. Because he says that. But what does he mean by it? He starts out this way. He says, wisdom is meaningless. That one catches you off guard, doesn't it? Who's the wisest man in the world according to the Bible? Solomon. Who's writing it according to the text? Solomon. Who knows more about reality than anybody does? Apparently, humanly speaking, Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon. And he says, wisdom, it's meaningless. You know why he says that? Because Solomon... Knew he was the smartest guy in the room. And Solomon knew that being part of an elite group of wise people, it was his job to figure things out. And he spent his entire life trying to figure it all out, getting to the bottom of everything. And he said, After that gigantic quest, I have to tell you something life is meaningless. And wisdom is too. This guy had everything, including wisdom. There's something in order to understand why he says wisdom is meaningless. There's something else that must be understood. In our popular culture, there is a a basic belief somehow that we can figure it out. Science thinks we haven't gotten there on certain issues, but we'll get there. Philosophers think, well, I don't quite have this one cracked, but we'll get there. If We just keep thinking. We just keep reasoning. We look at our world and say poverty is a horrible issue, but if we manage things right, we'll get there. It'll be gone. Solomon sees that as wisdom. And he doesn't agree that it's possible. He's basically saying, the reason I tell you that wisdom is meaningless is this, because with all you have, put you all together, all you human beings, your collection of knowledge and wisdom, you can't get to the bottom of it. You can't understand it completely. You won't have all the answers. So wisdom is meaningless because it ends dead at a dead end. All you're doing is searching. So wisdom's meaningless. I told you this was depressing. That's just one thing. The next thing he says is, pleasure's meaningless. Really? I don't know about you, but I don't want to cut out all the pleasure. I kind of like it. But Solomon says it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Remember, this guy had everything. Matter of fact, he describes all the things that he had. Not in detail, but overview. He said, I had man servant and women servant. I had gold and silver and costly jewels. I had a kingdom that was bigger than anybody. I had power. I had strength of all sorts. I had everything, everything. And I want to tell you, riches, everything I had, it's meaningless. Because with all the riches that I had, I was chasing pleasure. And you know what chasing pleasure is, Solomon said? Chasing pleasure is like chasing the wind. Okay, now for a minute, put your scientific understanding of meteorology on the shelf and think about this as an image from any of the ancient world. What your common sense understanding? of wind is, is pretty simple. We measure wind in relationship to an immovable object. Right? The tree is swaying, the wind is thus and so. I'm running in a headwind, and it's hard to run. I'm running with a tailwind, and it's better. The wind, as a matter of fact, is 40 miles an hour, as I think it might have been yesterday at some point. It was really blowing. Solomon says, You know what it's like? It's like chasing the wind. You know what it means to chase the wind? Theoretically, it means if the wind is in your face, you turn and you chase it. Not directly front on, you turn and you chase it by going in its direction. And once you catch up to the wind, what happens? It doesn't exist. It vanishes because you're the same speed as the wind. Solomon says, that's what I'm trying to say. Pleasures. You run after them, and then you catch them, and they're not there. This makes a dog chasing his tail look like a wise human being, right? At least it's an object. Don't chase pleasure, it's like chasing the wind. Not only is wisdom meaningless and pleasure is meaningless, toil is meaningless, or work. One of the things that was in the list that I talked about in terms of happiness, work he says is meaningless. And what does he mean? He means building things. He built a nation built a huge nation. He means building buildings. He built the temple. And it was unbelievable, Solomon's temple. We don't have pictures of it. I wish we did. Solomon's temple was huge. And his palace was huge. And he built all kinds of things. And he was able to take stones from different parts of the ginormous empire and cedars from other parts. He was able to build to his heart's content. He built reality. He said all that building is meaningless. Why? Not because there's not pleasure in getting something done. Not because there's a craft to your work and when you master it, you feel good about yourself. Not that. Because at the end of the day, once you complete it, and you complete it for who? Primarily yourself. You complete it for yourself. At the end of the day, someday you're going to be gone. And what you've created will go to someone else. And you cannot control what you created. Solomon says, it's meaningless. Let me put it another way. Solomon might have said, I could build the most beautiful sanctuary in the world. And eventually, somebody could turn it into a strip club. That's why toil is meaningless, because you can't control it in the end. He goes on to say that riches are meaningless. You know why? Among other things? Because there's never enough of them. How many of you have met a really, really wealthy person who was no longer pursuing wealth? Anybody? Not me. I know a lot of really wealthy people who are pursuing wealth with the same tenacity that they did when they started out. Because it's not enough. Riches are meaningless for that reason because there's never enough. I read an ancient theologian this week that said, this is a description of how non-being becomes the controller of being. That's amazing. Wealth is non-being. And it controls being, us. That's upside down, my friends. So Solomon said, riches are meaningless. For a variety of reasons, that's one of them. There's another reason that riches are meaningless because you can't take it with you when you go. You leave it behind. You know the old saying, you've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul, right? You leave it behind. And somebody else gets it. And you can't control what they do with it. So riches are meaningless. Toil is meaningless. Oh, this is just a short list, by the way, of what he said. Pleasures are meaningless. Wisdom is Meaningless. And you know one of the reasons that all of, the, all of those are meaningless? Because at the end of the day, death takes all of them away from you. You're left with nothing. You're left with none of them. Now's the point at which I want to place a sentence in your mind that is repeated over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's this sentence or part of a sentence. Life under The sun. So what has Solomon been talking about all this time? Life under the sun. He's been talking about the cycle of life that goes on and on and on and repeats itself over and over again. And he's been talking about the cycle of life which includes your birth and your death, your memory and your non-remembrance. That's what he's been talking about this whole book. He's not said a single thing about the eternal nature of God or man. He's just talking about life under the sun. And at the end of it all, he says it's meaningless. If that's all there is, we got nothing. Oh, by the way, Solomon also was making a real countercultural statement because in his day and before him, people who were really wealthy, they in effect denied death. Remember King Tut and the Egyptian tombs? Remember what's in them? Furniture, gold, costly jewels, cups of wine, food. So that the departed could have everything that he or she once had. Not really dead. Solomon says quite the opposite. It's all going to come to an end and death is going to suck all of life away from you and you're gone. As a matter of fact, he makes this really ghastly statement at one point. He says, better off dead than alive. You're better off dead than alive because living is worse than death. And furthermore, something that's even better than being dead is never having been born. Because all we got is life under the sun. So what's the conclusion of the matter? You know, in order to make sense of what Solomon says at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to go into the darkness. you got to go where he was. you got to think with him that none of this is worth anything. And then maybe, then maybe we can understand what he says at the end. So what is a meaningful life? It's to fear God and keep his commandments. Let's unpack what's going on there. He doesn't mean just walk around trembling all the time that God's going to strike you dead by a lightning bolt. He does mean fear God in that way. But he means more than fear God in that way. He means I want you to reverence God. Here's what he means, my friend. He means I want you to take every part of life and live with this posture before God. I want you to reverence God. Take it all and live on your knees. Fear God, he says. What's the second thing he says? Follow his commands. He knew what the commands were. This was post-Ten Commandments and the law delivered to Moses. He, He knew all about those. A lot of things he didn't know that we know as Christians. But he knew the commands. Did he claim when he said, follow the commandments of God, that he understood them? No, he probably would have told you he didn't understand them all. Would he have said to you that following the commands of God are always going to make you happy? I don't think so. What he would have said, I think, is this. God commanded it, so I will follow it. Because God is eternal, and remember, I am not. I just live under the sun, and he created it. So whether I understand the command or not, whether I can dig down with my wisdom to get the very baseline of even one of the commands of God is immaterial. It's irrelevant. For me to live a le- meaningful life, I just, can I, can I throw in a couple of words that he doesn't use that I think can elucidate the meaning? I just want you to follow God's commands By faith, I want you to look at God and say, God, I don't understand. Sometimes when I follow your commands, it looks like wrong side up. But on those days, God, I'm going to fear you and I'm going to follow your commands. By faith, anyway, because you're God and I'm not. Let me say something um, about that meaningful life that Solomon introduces to us. He does not say that that meaningful life will give you continuous happiness. You know that's a myth, right? As a matter of fact, if you were totally happy all the time, if you were ecstatic with life every moment of the day, if that was your reality, you would explode. You don't have the capacity to be that happy all the time. Speaking of DNA, you're not wired to be that happy all the time. That's why people run after illicit drugs because they want to be whatever that is all the time. You can't be. So, Solomon is not saying that following God in his commandments and fearing God for who he is means that you'll always be happy. You won't always be happy. He has a wonderful thing that he opens up his book with. He says there's a time for everything. There's a time for love and there's a time for hate. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. There's a time for living and there's a time for dying. There's a time for joy and there's a time for deep sorrow. And you can live a meaningful life and experience all those. No, put it a different way. If you're going to live a meaningful life, you need to experience all of those. Back to the statistics. (laughs) You know what else I found fascinating about the statistics? Arthur Brooks said in all their studies that they've done, um, they've tried to figure out happiness according to gender too. You know what they found out? That women are routinely more happy than men. So, Arthur Brooks is not talking to me. He's on a video. But if I'd been with Arthur, I would have said, what are you thinking? So why? I don't know what the data is on that. But being an armchair psychologist, I'm going to conjecture anyway, okay? It's just life experience. I got two beautiful women in my life. They shaped me in ways I am forever grateful for, my wife and my daughter. And both of them, more than me, understand what it means to cry. Just to let it all come out. And for almost 40 years now, with the first woman in my life, I've been figuring out, trying to figure out how to fix it when she cries. There's no fix. The fix is the cry. And So I put on the stiff upper lip and plow through the sadness. I mean, I cry sometimes, but not the same way, and I'm probably less happy. Why? Because the two women in my life, they understand the value of this. They know there's a time for joy and they know there's a time for sorrow. They know there's a time for laughter and they know there's a time for tears. And they do both equally well. A meaningful life doesn't mean you'll always be happy. And a meaningful life doesn't mean you'll always be satisfied. Why? Because your appetites are insatiable. Just like with food, you always want more. Just like with any other appetite, you're never satisfied, you always want more. So a meaningful life doesn't mean to be perfectly satisfied. You never will be. You weren't made for that. At least not here. So, what does it mean? Let me summarize it with three points. According to Solomon, it means understanding that you're mortal and accepting it. It is what it is. You're all going to die. That's what it means to be human. Second thing Solomon says is I want you to embrace this reality. And that reality is that life, the one you've got, the one you've got, life is a gift from God. So take that life and squeeze every bit of joy out of it that you can. See, right in the midst of this dark letter That he's writing to his son. You know what else he says? In the midst of all this dreariness and meaninglessness. He says to his son. I want you to understand this my son. I want you to love life. I'm summarizing. I want you to live life to the fullest. I want you to love the wife of your youth. I want you to suck every bit of joy out of life. Because that's what you've got right in front of you. Go ahead. Pursue it. But remember. Pleasure is meaningless. Toil's meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. Riches are meaningless. But you take what you have and you make the very best of it. So embrace your mortality. Embrace your life. And third. This is the most important thing. Third worship God take everything under the sun everything you have and offer it as worship to an eternal God that's what it means to have a meaningful life oh one final footnote Solomon didn't know Jesus the Old Testament prophets didn't either Most of the Bible doesn't even include him. I mean, explicitly. So really, Solomon's words, as profound as they are, they're only part of the story. The tagline for his words is, he actually said this part, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And you long for it. And you know what happened. Eternity came to earth. God became human and walked under the sun with us, experiencing all the joys and the sorrows, the pain and the pleasure with us. And then he said, This is not good enough. They need to experience life eternally with God. And so, he just marched up to Calvary and died and conquered death so we could have an eternal life, which is the highest point of meaning I hope you know that, Savior. Not everything's going to be okay just because you do. But you'll have eternal, meaningful life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, your Word, especially the parts of your Word that are hard to understand. Because it reminds us that we're not as wise as we think we are, and that we can't figure it out the way we'd like to, and that your ways are higher than our ways and above us. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that there are certain things that even in the darkness become clear. And as we walk through the darkness of Solomon's thoughts, it it becomes clear that real life is not found under the sun, but in the sun so we're so grateful that Jesus Christ our lord the very son of god walked with us under the sun so that we could live eternally with our lord in the sun we look forward to that day lord when everything will be made new when all the things that we once thought were so real become just a passing shadow. And that the love that is fulfilled so many times in this life will be exponentially greater and understand more, understood more fully in the life to come. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.